the Asco Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, this is Jeff Barton, and it's uh, just in- inconceivable that it's only two weeks ago that we had Askell Conference in what felt like um, relatively normal times. And I opened the conference by quoting the author Peter Drucker, who said, the only thing we know about the future is that it will be different. And as I said on the stage that day, the only thing we know about the present is that it's different, and it's got even more different since then. So I've put together a podcast which has got some interviews which uh, I started to record, but um, for reasons you'll understand, have suddenly come to a grinding halt. But I think they make interesting brief listening. You've got Anne Heavey, National Director of Whole School Send, talking um, some pretty radical talk about uh, the future of special needs provision across our schools. You've got Dylan William, who was speaking at a conference, just talking about uh, research, talking about assessment, talking about what works in some places and why it doesn't work in other places. Jonathan Simons, the Director of Education at Public First, was part of a panel in which he was asked the question, like the rest of the panel, if you were Education Secretary, what would you do to create a more just education system? here in the UK. And he talks a little bit about that. And finally, we wrap up with Rachel Warwick. She's our president of ASCOL this year. That's the highest elected post. She's also chief executive of the Ridgeway Education Trust. And she just reflects at the end of a conference in such surreal times about what it meant for her personally. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Anne Heavey, National Director at Whole School Send. Tell us a bit about Whole School Send. So we are a consortium of organisations, charities that share a commitment to making sure that every child, regardless of any additional needs that they have, can thrive and fly at school. And we've got quite a lot of big issues, haven't we, on our hands, uh, as we know, in terms of the funding. But funding actually isn't the most important thing, in a sense. It is what are we trying to do for children? Just talk me through why we're in a bit of a mess here. I think we're in a mess fundamentally because our system rewards and recognises supporting most learners to achieve and to be happy whereas what we need is a system that recognises and rewards achievement for every child and happiness of every child and at the moment there is a, a group of learners with multiple vulnerabilities to their learning some of whom have SEN some have others com- other complexities who despite our best efforts and, and the resource that we pour into supporting these youngsters we're often penalised for doing that rather than recognised and celebrated, which introduces perverse incentives. Couple that with a fragmented system and a real lack of clarity around what we're asking schools and professionals to do, and you end up with an SEND crisis. So is that uh, the heart and issue to do with the the curriculum? That is, what, what is it we want young people to know and do, and then how do we judge that? So you then get into qualifications. Is that, is that a kind of alienating um, kind of force... I think it's very safe to say that, you know, certainly since I started teaching, um, the options that are available and seen as valuable have narrowed. And how we recognise achievement has also narrowed. So it is a conscious decision to keep a broad curriculum and to teach vocational courses, to maintain the arts, and to, with such a hard expected standard line, to really cater for those pupils that are underneath that standard or working towards it and certainly back in sort of 29 2010 when I was entering the system it felt like there was more breadth and more options to draw on to support children to follow their interests and achieve really well in terms of the Senko role I would encourage leaders 
um, to work in partnership with their business manager and, and other senior leaders in the school to really think about structuring that work role so they can support strategic improvement across the piece and move away from operational and administration tasks. The new inspection framework really introduces an urgency for this. Uh, having recently been through two inspections, it was very clear that subject leaders needed to know how their curriculum catered for all children, not most, all. This is a change. And unless the SENCO has the capacity, the status and the resource to support those other leaders and to help every teacher understand diagnostic pedagogy in their classrooms, we're going to come unstuck. So look at the time you're giving them, look at the, the status and the influence you're giving your SENCO, look at how you build that team around them. And I understand this is about prioritisation, so we might need to remove resource from one area and, and pop it in here, but it will pay off in, in the long term. So the starting point of that is essentially that it, it is about the SENCO looking at how you help teachers to, to, to um, adapt their teaching for the needs of every child yeah. in front of them. So rather than th looking at a class and thinking there are six youngsters in here that need additional intervention that I have to do additional workload for, the easiest way to go about this is to actually think about inclusive pedagogy from the off. What can we build into our everyday classroom practice, our environments, our culture, our behaviour expectations, our expectations around how a lesson is structured and paced and how information is presented so that we catch the majority of learners the first time and we can quickly identify who, is, who has taken that learning and, ready, and is ready for the next step and which youngsters need something slightly additional or slightly different to, to take in that content. Um, just one, one last thing, uh, which is an unpalatable truth that you uttered uh, in the meeting I was just listening to you, which is essentially, in education, compare us with health, we have over-promised. Just explain that. Yeah. I think this is a really difficult problem. So our code of practice, SEND code of practice, makes huge, huge promises to children and families about what we're going to do for them. And we fail to deliver on those promises. And one of the tensions we have is that basically once we've identified a need, we promise that we will put it in place. And we've seen escalating tribunals because we can't do it. Elsewhere in the system, the health system, we are prepared to talk about rationing and what's available. You will be familiar with the concept of a waiting list or of prescription guidelines that limit who can access which drugs or treatment or services. And that is a massive tension and a real problem that we're going to have to grapple with because we can't just keep promising the earth and then delivering ashes. I know I said that was the last question. There's one more you just made me think of. And that is that... This could be a time for a government to be bolder, couldn't it? They've got these new constituencies, they're going to be in power for a long time by the look of it. They've got a big majority. If they were to be bold, what kind of stuff would you say they should be doing? I think we need to look at limiting fragmentation in terms of high needs provision. I would personally like to see a high needs formula that is a national high needs formula with top-up tariffs that are agreed centrally. I'd like to see one education health care plan process and template to reduce the postcode lottery in provision. And I would like to see us really get to grips with what on earth the notional budget is and what we should be doing with it. Because at the moment, it's extremely confusing. And uh, you, you said upstairs, you know, you've got a government, and perhaps in particular a minister, who's happy to prescribe on, say, synthetic phonics. Mm -hmm but actually leaves us adrift on, on other things to do with SEM. So um, 
key foundation in our provision is that we use the four broad areas of need as set out of the code of practice to plan our provision. Maybe I'm alone, but I think they're really unhelpful, particularly cognition and learning, which is vague and just lists some acronyms. I mean, if anyone can tell me what moderate learning difficulty is, answers on a postcode. But without understanding what that provision should be and, and making some recommendations from the centre using an evidence base, we're never going to get this right. And Hebe, thank you very much. Uh, Dylan William, I'm Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London Institute of Education. And you've been talking here at Ascal Conference this morning. Um, what, what was the theme? What were you saying? What I was trying to do was to help leaders make smart choices about priorities. There's so much information out there about things you might do that I was trying to suggest frameworks that they might use to think about those kinds of things. And the frameworks they usually offered things like meta-analysis and the Education Endowment Foundation's toolkit. I just don't think do the job because they don't take into account sufficiently in my view the, the the context in which schools have to operate so what I was trying to argue was that there's no shortcut here leaders have to engage with their research so they don't waste time on things that don't work but they also have to be critical consumers of that research and say maybe this is not the right thing for our school because our staff aren't ready for it the capacity that we would need is not yet developed all those other kinds of things the leaders just need to be making smart choices about what's right for their school at that point in the development. Okay, so what we're not saying though is that this is about a culture of teachers as researchers. Absolutely not. Yeah. So and why I, do you say absolutely when you say so, that? So basically I'm very happy that some teachers might want to do research and I'm very keen that teachers should inquire into their own practice through a process I would call principled inquiry. So it's not just trying a few things out, it's, it's, it's more formal than that. But I don't think we should call it research. Because for me, the thing about research is it transcends the context of data collection. So one of the things researchers try to do is to figure out what can I learn in this context that will apply to other contexts. And they have tools like theories to help them do that. Teachers don't have that. Mm. So teachers should be focusing on their classroom and what works for them in their classroom. Researchers need to figure out what can we take from that example to somewhere else. They're different skills. And I think teachers would be better off, frankly, focusing on their teaching and, make, and making a difference to their students. And that notion of leaders being critical consumers uh, implies that we have some capacity to know what is and what isn't reliable and what sources may provide that. I mean, what, what, what advice in terms of where we should start? Because I think a lot of people will immediately think, OK, the EEF is the yeah. go-to place. Well, it is. And I think it's very difficult because I think the EEF is a, a huge service by trying to take all this research and tell a, tell a simple story. Uh, unfortunately, it's not simple. And therefore, I, I think we have to be critical. And as I said, the four questions I offer today, um, does this solve a problem we have? Could it be implemented here? Those first two are things the EF does not address. They then talk about the cost-benefit analysis, so I think that's helpful. But I think leaders need to be empowered to say, no, I know this is the top of the EF's hit parade, but it wouldn't be the right thing for our school right now. Mm. And I think, you know, the point is, you still have to make the decision for your building. I mean, a classic example, I didn't talk about it very much, is class size reduction. So my home state of Florida has mandated a maximum class size of 23 in primary schools. And people think that's great. But it's been a disaster for our county because it's a poor rural county. When you reduce class size, you create new jobs for teachers. And all our good teachers went to Jacksonville and to Gainesville. So we've actually had to give jobs to people who I don't think should be teaching. 
So the perverse effect of class size reduction has been, has been to make teaching worse in our county, and our superintendent could have told you that 10 years ago. They knew that class size reduction was, was a problem because they found it hard to recruit teachers as it is. And this is why um, it, it, Frederick Bastia, the French journalist and economist, said the really important thing is the seen and the unseen. And so when people say class size reduction, parents see their kids in a smaller class. What they don't see is that teacher isn't as good as the teacher they had last year. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's really difficult to, 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 to um, take this stuff and just apply it because contexts are different and that's what leaders have to do. They have to be the contextualizers. Final question. It's from you that I learned the phrase policy tourism. Yeah. This notion of looking, you know, Finland's doing this, we yeah. should, Shanghai's doing this and so on. When you look in on the English education system, uh, which we're saying today, we've got a good education system, but it's not working for about 30%, the forgotten third right. of kids, yeah. we're saying. What, so what, what would you be looking on thinking, this, this probably is what that country should be doing? I, I think that this will reflect my prejudices. I mean, I used to be interested in helping kids make progress. My first ever academic journal article was about value-added. I've now become much more skeptical about value-added, and I'm now thinking about how are the kids at the bottom end of the achievement range doing? So for me now, I want to spend a disproportionate amount of our effort on making sure that every child gets up to a level of numeracy and literacy that they can actually function effectively in modern society. And I think that's what we need. We need to be unashamed about spending far more money on the kids who need more help. Absolutely. And I think that's what the American No Excuses Charter Schools are doing. Um, and they're, you know, some of them are extending the school year by 45%. They're putting an extra, you know, literally an extra thousand hours. And, and it's making a difference. But no school or college that I'm aware of in England is putting in that kind of extra resource right. to create an equal opportunity for everybody to, to, yeah. to reach a thriving level of... And that um, makes a difference if you've got quality teachers, of course, isn't it? It's not, more, more isn't better if the quality isn't good, presumably. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's an empirical question. It might just mean they just need more time. Yeah. So, I mean, more average yeah. teaching might be better than yes. saying no, yeah. no more teaching. Yes. So, I, I, we don't know. But I think that, as I say, I've now become convinced that because children have different brains, the bell curve that we get is the result of treating everybody the same. And if you treat different people the same, you'll get the bell curve. We need to start treating students who find it more, more difficult to learn, we need to start treating them differently. We need to give them more support, we need to get the best teachers to them, we need to give them extra time, maybe even coming back on Saturdays, not accepting that they fall behind. We re-engineer our schools so they, they, they don't accept the bell curve anymore. Every child who gets to the age of 15 without being functionally numerous, numerate and literate, we regard as a failure not just a consequence of the bell curve. Dylan William, thank you. Yeah, Jonathan Simons, Director of Education at Public First. Just tell us about Public First. Who, who are you? So we are a public policy consultancy. We work with organisations uh, in education and indeed in other areas to help them think through how to work with government, how to get their message across, what their strategy should be. And you're here at Askell Conference where you've just been part of a panel talking about uh, if you were Secretary of State, what one thing might you do to try and make our good education system good for everyone? How do we create a fairer system? What kind of things were you saying? So I was talking about two things. One was about what the framework should look like for every single teacher. So from the time they join the profession at 
2021 or, or, or later, right through to when they leave, there's a really clear pathway that says what you should do, what you should be able to do, and crucially, how you can be supported. And then from a leader's perspective, as our school members, whether you're in charge of one school or two schools or 10 schools, what does the infrastructure look like for you so that you can support your staff so that, as you say, it can be good and good for everyone? So this is a kind of curriculum footage or a, a framework for... It's, it's what Justin Greening used to say that actually if you were an accountant in your fifth year, it looked different from being an accountant in your second year. Is, it, is that the kind of idea? That, that's, that's exactly right. So the early career framework, I think, is a really good example of that. As a starting point, it has a clear structure which says in the first few years of your profession, what should you be able to do? How should you get it? How should you be supported? And we have the bits of that in the system. So we have the specialist MPQs. We have some element of what it's like to be a, a head teacher or to be a system leader. And what I would like to see is that that just goes all the way through. So that if you do want to go into leadership or if you want to stay in the classroom, but it doesn't stop at the fifth year. It, at every stage, you know what you should be able to do and what the support is available for you to continue to get better. And is that something we should be looking to government to develop? No, and I think this, this is the brilliance of it. So the strength, I think, of the early career framework is that it was genuinely, to use the awful phrase, co-constructed between government and the profession. So you need government to put the money in, you need government to set the expectations. There are some things, like additional time off timetable, which government does need. But the answers are in this conference. The answers are in the, 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 the room. There are ASCAL members. What can you do in your school to make your environment a good environment for all of your staff to learn, to stay, and to keep on getting better? Final question. We have uh, had the premise that we have got a good education system. It's not world class. Is our analysis right? Is it a good education system? I think it is a good education system on the whole. Uh, I think we shouldn't beat ourselves up about that. And I've done a lot of work in my previous career at international education systems. And a huge amount of people look to the English system with a great deal of uh, pride and support. And we should be proud of it. But I think Haskell is absolutely right to not be complacent and to recognise that we can do better for everyone. And Dylan William puts it really well, who of course also spoke here, we need to stop doing good things in order that we can do even better things. And I think that can be the case for our system as well. John and Simon, thank you. Rachel Warwick, I'm Executive Head of Ridgeway Education Trust and President of our school this year. And here we are on day two, getting towards the end of conference in your presidential year, Rachel. Just give a reflection on, on what it's felt like from the inside. I think it's been... Um Inspirational is not too too much of a word to use in the sense that we've heard such strong, powerful stories from keynote speakers and an interpretation of diversity, which is really multi-layered and nuanced from people talking about their own stories, like Sabrina Cohen-Hatton um, rising above adversity from really difficult background, to people talking about cognitive diversity like Matthew Syed and the overlap with demographic diversity. So forcing us to think about things in a different way, and not least Len Sisse, you know, what an inspiration that man was, and uh, just saying to us he doesn't have a problem with diversity because diversity is at the heart of who we are. And I think if anybody nailed diversity for our conference, it was Len Sisse yesterday. Absolutely. Well, it was you who brought the, 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 the notion that we ought to focus on diversity. And the risk was always that it, was, it could be seen as a bit tokenistic, mm -hmm. as it were. 
Are you reassured that it's now moved way beyond tokenism into something which is going to be tangible? I think so. I feel really confident about that. I think there's been a tipping point and that probably was about looking outwards and working in collaboration with other groups. Some of the grassroots groups have been fantastic in working alongside us like Women Ed and BAMED, LGBT Ed, um, NGA as well. And I think there's a head of steam, which means that we're now working in partnership with other organisations across the system, which will mean this continues it has a momentum to continue this work over the next the years to come and finally um the asco conference is always on a large scale and you sit looking at a, a, a large stage and extraordinary audio visuals and for you as president but also you as uh, a trust leader seeing your young people there performing that must have felt pretty special i think Yes, I think probably, to be truthful, the highlight of conference for me was in the first 10 minutes when the dancers opened conference and just felt very proud of them and their teacher and the, um, the confidence, actually, uh, which just showed on their faces, enjoying that moment and then having our students singing. It just brought to life to me what an amazing privilege it is to have had this role in ASCL and that the schools that I work with and the students in them have directly been able to benefit from that too, which is wonderful. Rachel Warwick, thank you. The ASCL Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.